You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast. All righty, guys. So we're back with uh, Spine Citations Classics. Um, this is our third installment, um, and we're going to be focusing on spinal cord injury. Um, I'm Soham, here with you guys today from Indiana. Hey, guys, this is uh, Jay, Jay Fitz, back again with you guys. And this is um, Jose there, uh, Jose Chagón, uh, the medical student from uh, American University Integrative Science at Barbados there. All right, let's go ahead and get things started. A little bit of background on spinal cord injuries. All right, Jose, I'll let you take it away. Thank you there. Basically, um, as you know, that the, um, the spinal cord is, is practically important um, organ, basically, that covers the, the neurological um, function from both. And you know that the spinal cord is divided to both the central as well as the parenteal nervous system there. Of course, you know, central nervous system consists of brain and spinal cord and the parenteal system basically goes all out to the arms and legs, et cetera, there. And basically, uh, in the topic we're talking about uh, injuries of the spinal cord, it really deals a lot of times, um, it's a bimodal distribution. Basically, it can occur in both in young and as well as also in older adults. What what difference between the two is usually is based upon the etiology. Like in the the case of the younger population, usually due to high injury uh, types, like for example, trauma, more vehicle accidents, as well as also gunshot wounds, et cetera there. In the case, whereas in adult old, older population, usually it's arthritic um, or bone quality in, issues involved there that can cause um, fractures or other uh, displaced uh, that can impinge the uh, spinal cord there. And in terms of the the endodermology of it, it's estimated that uh, 50% of these injuries occur at the cervical spine level, while the other occur at the thoracolumbar area. And basically, the the effects of these um, injuries can have can be very um, debilitating and itself can cause, for example, neurogenic shock there, uh, motor sensory losses issues there, and may kind of affects respiratory, uh, prone to infections, and then at, and then it causes uh, pressure sores, uh, and basically. And then it, and over time, this could cause not so much a phys- pathophysiological um, conditions, but also it can affect psychogenically, it can cause depression and to the point that sometimes it gives a very poor quality of life there. And basically it gives a very uh, poor prognosis over time. Yeah, I think that you did a very good job, you know, hitting the high points of, of what spinal cord injury entails. Jose, I think that one of the things that uh, you emphasize the, the bimodal distribution and, you know, as a PGY2 taking spine call, we see that a lot, you know, you see young patients that come in in their twenties with gunshot wounds, uh, you know, and these are life-changing injuries uh, that happen in a second. And then, you know, older patients that are already spondylitic to begin with that have a ground level fall or a, a low energy MVC that, um, you know, can have facet, you know, facet fracture dislocations and um, central cord syndrome and all these pathologies that we're going to touch on. So I think that's a really important point for, um, you know, people who are going to be seeing this stuff clinically. So let's get into the first paper here. Okay. For this one here, it's basically, it's titled International Standards for Neurological Classification of Spinal Cord Injury. This is more so of a, a background of a comprehensive booklet that was um, was created um, in accordance to the International Standards of Neurological Classification of Spinal Cord Injury. This was um, started by Kreshflerm and all, and it was published in 
2011 from in the Journal of Spinal Cord Medicine. And the study was conducted at the Kisler Institute for Rehabilitation at the UMDJ New Jersey Medical School in West Orange, New Jersey. So basically, not at your typical uh, article, but essentially it's a it gives a it's a um, booklet that gives about background information about basically how we conduct, for example, the con for injuries for both motor sensory and at what levels and what based upon presentation and so forth. And then the the book the book itself opens up with basically some vocabulary to understand just to uh, start off, like for example, te tetraparaplegic, dermatome, myotomes, sensory motor level, which for the most part, for any medical student resident, for the most part, we understand that these are very clinically significant in terms of determining the, the extent of the injury at what levels and so forth and what kind of um, functions they cannot, can and cannot do depending on the presentation there. And basically, uh, this, this uh, booklet gives uh, uh, a scale of, of impairment scale based upon Asia, which is, stands for the American Spinal Injury of America Association there. And it goes by and gives a designated letter based upon its uh, presentation. For example, those, those most severe will go from A through E, A being the most severe to E to less severe there. And basically for each, basically briefly on each one, A basically means a complete, which basically has no sensory or more function is presented, especially at the sacral. And for B is basically means sensory incomplete, which is basically sensory, but not motor function is preserved below, below the neurological level. And for C and D oftentimes can, can be, can be, um, can be a little confused at times there because both of them basically deals with motor incompletes and deals with motor functions preserved below the neurological level. In the case of C, is usually more than half of the key um, muscle function below a single neurological level, whereas in D, it's at least half of the key muscle function below their neurological levels. And of course, E is normal, basically meaning that sensation more functions are preserved without any interaction. I, I and, think that the, the sorry, just to interrupt you real real quick for the Asia classification. I think one of the important points is for. The, the E, right, E being normal or not, not having a spinal cord injury, that only applies to somebody who, who had a spinal cord injury at some point and then progressed to being normal. Otherwise, you know, we would all be Asia E. So I think that that's something that I actually learned while reading this paper I thought was interesting. Um, that, you know, I was like, oh, yeah, it makes sense. You know, I, I would be an Asia E otherwise. Yeah. And another thing, and, and uh, you guys are saying it just like Jose was saying, uh, this is like one of the few times that it's not good to be an A or have an A. All right. So the scale is actually, you know, backwards of what some people might assume. So if you ever get this test question and you're trying to remember, is it Asia E or Asia A that is worse? Uh, Asia A is a complete uh, spinal cord injury versus E, which is, you know, completely normal. So Keep yeah. that in mind. Uh, that's just one of those things that sometimes can trick you up when you actually see the question come up. Yeah, it's contrary to a lot of classification systems that we have to learn where, you know, it gets progressively worse. It's like completely backwards. So I think that's a high yield point and the OITE loves to test on this stuff. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you guys there for bringing the point there. There And basically, uh, 
from all this scale, this in scale here and so forth, and examination and so forth, is basically the clinical significance of the major of this is that it determines based upon the syndrome listed. And just some gives some examples there, like central cord, uh, basically the uh, it's a typical presentation that uh, deals with an, someone in the elder population with arthritic uh, issues and compresses the spinal cord there. And then brown suler basically is a hemi-segment basically affects um, almost all symptoms on epilateral side with the, with the, with the uniqueness that uh, it has pain temperature sensation on the contralateral side. Then you have anterior cord, and basically that's, basically that's um, not going to details, that's basically where the anterior, the anterior spinal artery is, is ligated. They're lacking the uh, blood supply there as a result, causes spinothalamic and, and uh, injuries there with the preserve of pressure vibrating cinch because that's distributed by the, the posterior cord, which has no effect on the anterior spinal canal uh, artery. And then, and then the other two, the other two, the quinine esquine and conus mayoralis. Oftentimes, these two can be a little um, confused at times because they're very similar in terms of location and so forth. But the old, how I always remember, especially in stifle board styles, that cauda esquine has two unique features. One is that it has it has the has the uh, presentation of the saddle saddle uh, anesthesia, basically. The bilateral medial uh, thigh, upper thighs have lack sensation there. And as well as also one particular is you do digital rectal exam shows that there's a lack, uh, decreased tone in the anal sphincters, which makes it, um, because as you know, as you know call, call esquine is a medical emergency if diagnosed, has been immediately re resected, whereas cornus menialis very similar to uh, cornus mealis has only, is pretty mild in itself there, but certainly, certainly if any kind of, with these conditions, if any um, issues, let's say with fecal or urinary continence, it certainly a, is a warrant for surgical intervention. Other times it's just medical management from there. And for, uh, for doctors, both Patel and Fritz there, have, have, are there times where you have these two, uh, you have uh, patients, uh, present with these either these conditions and oftentimes that determine which is which sometimes yeah so you know we get consults from the emergency department all the time for you know rule out cauda equina and um, i think just to kind of backtrack a little bit um at least from my understanding and, and my institution both of these things um you know are equivalently emergent if if we're consulted for them um you know the the main difference being uh between cauda equina and conus medullaris is uh you know as you know, the, the spinal cord terminates at the L1, L2 level um, and, and ends in the cauda equina, which stands for horse's tail. So all the nerve roots, the lumbosacral nerve roots, you know, they look like a horse's tail to the whoever, you know, Greek guy named it. Um, but so the conus itself is actually still part of the spinal cord and it has, um, you know, the descending tracks, the upper motor neuron tracks in it. So if you have compression at the conus, you have, you know, you have similar symptoms of saddle anesthesia, uh, lower extremity weakness, urinary retention, but, um, you know, sometimes you have upper motor neuron signs as well, like hyperreflexia and rigidity, whereas cauda equina is pure lower motor neuron. So you may have saddle anesthesia, urinary retention, flaccid paralysis, but would not have any upper motor neuron signs. And both of those things, if consulted, you know, by the emergency department, it's like, I better get down there and see and examine that patient as soon as possible. Yeah, it's definitely like one of those type keywords or key phrases, you know, um, lower extremity, acute pain, and, you know, any kind of, uh, 
incontinence, uh, bowel incontinence or salad, paresthesias, things like that. I mean, it all of a sudden becomes an emergency and, uh, they, they know it too. So sometimes they say it and you're like, man, really? And, uh, but they, you yeah. know, they, they know we got to move when, once we hear those types of things. So anytime you have any kind of suspicion for that, you know, you, first thing you need to do is, you know, of course, get you getting a, getting a good exam, like your own exam. Uh, but then you definitely want to get an MRI and kind of go from there. Um, and it's good to know that both of these uh, different syndromes do exist, but like like we mentioned, you know they're they're somewhat urgent emergencies. So we need to uh, first find out what's going on and get to the and get them to surgery as soon as we can. Nice, exactly. Right. And basically, right. these these syndromes, as you know, that these are your typical board style, um, but they're very clinical relevant particularly for, for many med students and new residents alike there, and even those um, uh, those attending levels as well there. So Yep, the high-yield stuff that we see on our board still that I definitely remember seeing on step one. All right. Moving on to this nice chart. And this chart here, as, as you can see here, is basically gives you basically kind of like a, a, a survey, basically give, of all the... Um, of all the nerve roots with the appropriate uh, assessment for both motor and sensory, particularly functions like, for example, for, uh, for, for issues, this will give you a further um, as a guidance to see where the issue would be, particularly assessment for neurological levels, as well as also to see, as well as also to see if this um, is considered complete or incomplete, and thus will give you the, the scale from order A to E. Um, classification there based upon what what the the patient is able and not able to do in terms of the motor sensory levels here. And then as you can see in index two, it gives you kind of an algorithm that gives you a step-by-step -step process, gives you to see how to go about in terms of the, um, in terms of giving you the classification for based upon the presentation there. And um, it's, and the only issue, and of course, there's one particular um, point I would like to bring this out is a, is a term we use is called zone of partial preservation or ZPP. Basically, what that it means is that it's an area where both where there's where um, despite having some uh, spinal cord issue, but the the um, excuse me, basically the is the area where there's where there's motor and motor preservation despite sensory issues. So in you and this is the only issue with this one is that this is only referred to complete uh, injury. If it's incomplete, um, zone of preparation cannot cannot be used, and thus it it may be a different classification there. So this was one of the one of the little issues that uh, this this um that this uh, classification had was dealing with completes and incompletes there. But other than that, it gives a fair, fairly good uh, diagram guidance to, to get appropriate uh, diagnosis um, classification and, and then use it as a for management for both if surgical management or other um, non-surgical modalities is needed. Right. I think that you know, the importance for this chart is that I don't think any orthopedic surgeon is, is sitting there doing an exam and filling this out, but uh, for the patients that have spinal cord injuries that follow up with physiatrists or you know, PM&R doctors, um, you know, this is something that they use to, to classify the injury. And the high yield stuff, at least from my standpoint, for a clinical exam, are, are testing nerve roots. So you know, the, which which muscle groups correlate to which nerve roots, um, and that's something that you know is also available 
you know, unortho bullets and things like that just for, you know, high yield physical exam. But I think that this is just for completeness sake to, to understand what goes into defining, you know, the, the injury level. All right, so we'll move it along, kind of keep it on the same theme. Um, this is a paper that's uh, published in Spine in 2005 um, out of Rothman Institute um, by, by Dr. Vaccaro. Um, and this is, you know, at the time was uh, titled A New Classification of Thoracolumbar Injuries um, with the Importance of Injury Morphology, uh, Integrity of the Posterior Ligamentous Complex, and Neurologic Status. Uh, so we'll go ahead and dive into it. So a little bit of background on the topic itself. So, you know, thoracolumbar spine injuries have had uh, varying classification schemes for a long period of time, but none have been uh, very popular uh, prior to this due to their lack of um, prognostic capability or, you know, lack of uh, cohesiveness amongst different groups. Um, and, you know, they didn't really take into account the dynamics of the injury, how the injury occurred, um, or how it should be treated. So these, you know, these clinicians, uh, a large group of spine surgeons kind of headed by Dr. Vaccaro had this idea to, to present a clinically useful classification system that uh, could describe the injuries that was easy to remember, um, and that could stratify injuries by severity and potentially give a prognosis. So that was kind of the idea of, of why they wanted to propose this classification system. So they took a, you know, several experts, I think around 40 from multiple level one trauma centers internationally, um, and kind of gathered information from all these people uh, via surveys and polls um, to determine what they thought were important factors for determining this classification system. Um, and so they were, they sent out these uh, surveys at a single institution and to the spine study trauma group uh, to determine how to get a reliable and valid, valid uh, classification system. So together after these surveys were completed, they identified three important components um, to guide clinical decision-making in patients who sustain thoracolumbar trauma. Um, and as we mentioned, that would include morphology of the injury, um, as you see on imaging, x-ray, CT, MRI, the integrity of the posterior tension band or the posterior ligamentous complex, and the, the clinical neurologic status of the patient. Um, so kind of going into these different categories, um, you know, injury morphology. So when we see a, a spine fracture console, you know, we often get consulted for a compression fracture in a 70-year-old osteoporotic patient. Um, and, you know, that'll just be, you know, the console they get there and they won't tell you anything about the neurologic status. Oftentimes all we have is plain films. So you don't know anything about the posterior ligamentous complex. So you have to kind of dive deeper into this. Um, and, and, you know, this is also applicable to high energy MVC trauma. You know, you'll see patients that will get a consult for, and they'll say, we have a patient in the, in the trauma base that has uh, bilateral lower extremity numbness, um, you know, obvious deformity in their ribs and uh, some kind of rotational deformity, and they have some trauma bay x-rays that, that show anterolisthesis of the, uh, you know, thoracolumbar spinal cord or the spinal column. Um, and, you know, that's, this classification system is applicable to that as well. So I think that that's, that's where this becomes useful. Um, so they gave the different morphologies a different score, uh, it's kind of compression fractures being the least, and then going upward from first rotational to distract flexion or extension distraction type injury. Um, so that, that kind of dictates, you know, obviously the energy of the, the injury, but also the likelihood of having an associated uh, ligamentous and neurologic injury. And then the, the posterior ligamentous complex is important um, because it's uh, a secondary protector of the neural elements of the spine. So it consists of the supraspinous ligament, interspinous ligament, ligamentum flavum, and the capsules of the facet joints. 
Um, it's, it's been called the posterior tension band uh, because of its role in providing, you know, that elastic strength to the spinal column and when it's disrupted has a high association with neurological uh, injury because of instability. Um, and then obviously the neurologic status is important because it could tell you whether there's been injury to neurologic elements. So these are the three components. As you can see, they're each assigned a score um, and that leads to a composite score in this uh, thoracolumbar injury classification system. So the importance of this uh, in clinical decision-making, so for me as a junior resident taking call, uh, is it, it can kind of guide whether you know, something needs to be emergently operated on or whether it can potentially be treated non-operatively. And I think that that's the beauty of this classification system. Um, so the composite scores, as you saw in the previous slide, uh, each different category is assigned a number. And if you're less than three, um, it's highly suggestive of a non-operative injury, um, and then between three and four is kind of the gray area. And then if your score is above five, it's more than likely going to need surgery. So for me, if I have a, you know, like I go back to that patient, I mentioned the 70 year old with a compression fracture, uh, neurologically intact, probably wouldn't get an MRI to look at the posterior ligamentous complex. Their TLUX score would be, you know, one, and, uh, I would be comfortable after getting some upright x-rays, treating them non-operatively and, and, uh, not waking up my staff in the middle of the night. And that's, uh, impartially and thanks to this classification system. So uh, I think that this was an important thing to touch on. Um, Jay, any, any pointers from? Yeah. I mean, just, I think uh, being able to read this paper and kind of see where it comes from was pretty neat uh, because of how much we use it today. I, like you said, I think it's something residents and, you know, all spine staff, uh, you know, use to some extent. Now, how it was pretty much described to me, just like you said, so hum, it's more so of a guide um, to let you know, you know, possibly surgery versus not, you know, but it's not, it's definitely not a, you know, okay, it's a four or it's a five. So 100% this person needs surgery. It's, that's not completely always the case, but it definitely gives you a little bit more leeway. It's something you can document because it's, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's pretty well observed and, you know, it's used amongst all the, the different uh spine staff uh and that's neuro and ortho um so it's something you can talk to your attendings with if you're talking to them over the phone and suggest and use this as a you know that's why i think this person would benefit from surgery or not but um you know it's, it's not just because you have this number 100 surgery like that. i've seen some people with a four and which is four is kind of either you know either or but I've even seen some with a five and, you know, we decided to put them in a brace. It, so it's not a hundred percent, but it definitely is like a guide. Um, and like you mentioned before, you know, the, uh, it pretty much comes down to the, the more, more, most important pieces of this. And um, you can even look at the scoring. It pretty much is, it's the posterior ligament, ligament is complex intact and their uh, neurologic status. And you can see that the, the twos and threes uh, a little bit more, there, there's more twos and threes in these two groups, uh, specifically PLC, the posterior lig ligament is complex. If that's out, uh, that's going to lead you towards surgery a whole lot more, you know, more times than not, just because, you know, you, you're, you're pretty much thinking that this may be unstable at this point. And if it's unstable to where they can't bear weight without having an increase in deformity, it, it probably needs to have some kind of fixation. Uh, and even the higher scores that's on like the morphology, you know, like a distraction injury, more, more times than not, that's going to have some kind of uh, PLC injury with that as well. Um, 
I don't not 100 percent sure all rotational injuries do, even though you would think that there, there still have to be most likely some kind of injury to the posterior ligamentous complex with translational and, and rotational injuries. But I'm not I'm not sure if that's 100 percent or not. But um, like I said, I think this is one that you need to know is probably one of our more famous classifications or more, you know, commonly used. So it's definitely a good one to, to read up on and have in your back pocket if you're taking any kind of spine trauma call for sure. Nice. Yeah. I don't mind there. Just one little pointer there. As Dr. Fritz mentioned there that this, um, this, this classification is just, just like we mentioned with the spinal, uh, the Asian classification that we mentioned, they both serve as a guide there to give you a, a better understanding to what, what, um, what modalities approaches based upon the presentation. Although, although there's, it's not a very, it's not completely, uh, 100% there, but certainly one of the better um, uh, guides to do it. It would serve your your um, your treatment options much more more specific, and they rather just wondering if this and this and that there. But certainly gives us a good guidance in order to see um, and then and to see what modality involved, and then afterwards over time there we just will follow up on it and see what proven there from there. Agreed. Yep. All right, let's move it along to the next one. So this is something that I remember being tested on, um, and I thought that that's why this was important. Um, this is a paper from Spine in 2009 by Ito et al. Uh, out of Japan. Um, so this is a consecutive cohort study uh, to look at the effects of methylprednisolone uh, in spinal cord injuries, specifically in the cervical spine. Um, so I guess the title of the paper is Does High-Dose Methylprednisolone Sodium Succinate Really Improve Neurologic Status in Patients with Acute Cervical Cord Injuries? Um, so basically what these guys did was uh, in the 90s, there was a landmark trial called uh, the National Acute Spinal Cord Injury Study, or also known as NASCIS. Um, and this was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, I believe, um, and has been widely cited as the source of why we treat patients with, or why we treated patients with steroids in the past for acute spinal cord injury. So these authors, uh, you know, like many others had critiques of this study due to lack of evidence, lack of clinically significant evidence for neurologic improvement and a high incidence of reported complications with uh, steroid administration. So they wanted to investigate further. Um, so they looked at a two-year cohort of patients with cervical spine injuries um, and treated them with methylprednisolone uh, as long as they presented within eight hours of surgery. So kind of some history about methylprednisolone. Um, you know, it's obviously a steroid that we use due to anti-inflammatory actions. It's used in brain injuries. Um, and like I mentioned, it was used in NASCIS2, which is a randomized controlled trial, uh, comparing that with naloxone for and, uh, in placebo. Um, so controversial, like I mentioned, um, but due to its anti-inflammatory properties was used. Um, so the patients that were administered methylprednisolone over a two-year period were monitored uh, for neurologic improvement, um, which was scored based on the, the Asia classification, um, the detailed Asia, Asia classification. Um, and they looked at patients' neurologic status at time of presentation, uh, neurologic status over time, and development of complications. Um, so they did that over two years. And then for the next two years, they had a group of patients with spinal cord injuries that they did not administer steroids to, and they looked at these same modalities. Uh, so total in, in each group in the 
methylprednisolone group over two years, they had 38 patients. And then the non-steroid group, they had 41 patients. And I like this chart because it kind of divides up uh, your study populations, sample sizes, um, and there's uh, no statistically, statistical significance in the, the demographic characteristics presented. Um, so let's go ahead and see what these guys found. So they found that in, in these patients, there was uh, a very small clinically insignificant improvement in the Asia motor score uh, at three months after injury, regardless, you know, in the MPSS group or the methylprednisolone group, uh, there was a, a slightly lower score, but again, it was not statistically or clinically significant. Um, in patients with Asia A injuries, there was a slight improvement in Asia motor score, again, not in statistically or clinically significant. Um, but what they did find was that there was a higher rate of complications in the methylprednisolone group. Um, I think 18 or 19 patients ended up with pneumonia versus, uh, I think, 14 in the non-steroid group. I know these are small sample sizes, probably, which is one of the critiques of the paper, but um, there was a statistical, statistical significance in the complication rate in the steroid groups due to this increased rate of pneumonia. So what they concluded, the authors of this paper, was that uh, based on their you know, consecutive cohort study, there was no evidence supporting um, high-dose methylprednisolone administration in patients with acute spinal cord injuries. Um, they did have higher incidences of pneumonia, and um, the improvements that they saw were neither statistical or clinically significant. So um, I think that this was uh, important for me because in my time of training, um, you know, I remember in the past, probably as a medical student, seeing questions on, you know, UWorld or quite other question banks about administering steroids. And as I actually got into residency and started seeing these patients and treating them, um, our, at least at my institution, our practice is to not give steroids in acute spinal cord injuries. Um, I know, you know, metastatic spinal cord injuries from for oncologic meds are, are different, and um, but specifically for trauma, we don't give steroids at my institution. So I was kind of interested in, in the history of that. And uh, I think that for those of you that haven't read that original landmark trial, that NAS CIS2, that's also a good one to check out. All one right. thing I wanted to, if I don't mind, uh, Dr. Patel, yeah, one, yeah, thing, one thing I bring out is that uh, even though the, this study should, does shows that uh, that the, the use of it increased uh, instance for complications there, that even though despite this studies like this there, it's that methoprolonezone is still commonly used worldwide for, um, for um, any uh, spinal cord injuries for it. And due to their, because usually they're more widely available compared to some more um, improvements there. But for the most part there, it's it overall that uh, it's still reliable for other things there. But certainly, certainly, this is a good study to give us a, a guide, give us an idea that um, for the further treatment for these kind of uh, for these kind of patients and these injuries there. Uh, and of course, as you mentioned there, one thing I would critique on it is that it has a very low sample size, but it does give serves as a foundation for the, for for these kind of um, these kind of uh, modalities for as in the near future. Yeah. Right. And just like you're saying, I, so I, I follow behind a, a few attendings and uh, I have seen uh, some attendings prefer to, to use um, steroids, especially if it's something we, the patient get to our, our you know, our facilities, uh, you know, within a couple of hours, you know, they're seem like they're a little bit more likely to use uh, steroid, but um I, I, so like you guys mentioned, it's small sample size, but it definitely seems to lean towards not using steroids for uh, spinal cord injuries, especially if you're going to have a higher incidence of things like pneumonia and 
uh, different pulmonary issues. So uh, I thought it was pretty interesting because just like you said, it is something I have seen on uh, questions before. And uh, up to a certain point, I mean, earlier on, I definitely was getting a little confused by, you know, should we use this or should we not? And this paper is definitely leaning more so towards the the, the saying no when it comes to these types of injuries. So uh, great paper. Yeah, I think for my understanding, and I could be wrong, but I think they stopped testing this specific topic. And I know at least for yeah. the OITE, if it's controversial, they tend to not test it. Uh, whereas in the past, after that, you know, that original paper in the 90s, it was kind of hammered a lot and then once it became controversial they seem to have stepped away from it yeah exactly uh, yeah it, it's definitely just like you mentioned i don't think it's going to be on the oit uh and if we saw it, it it had to be on something like an ortho bullets or you know some kind of study prep but it's not a, something like that is not on the actual test just because you can kind of find data that may lead you to either you know either side depending on you know what you're looking at so yeah yeah for sure all right jumping into the last one Glad you guys are still with us. Title of this one here, Current Practice and the Timing of Surgical Intervention in Spinal Cord Injuries. So this was published in Spine as well in 2010. Um, this was a, another multi-centered study, primarily out of uh, the Neuroscience Center in Toronto, Canada, uh, by failings et al. So again, this is another relevant one for the junior resident taking call. Seems like to be a theme for the papers that I like to pick. Um, but this is another literature review. Um, with an objective to, to get expert opinion regarding the timing of surgical decompression um, in a variety of spinal cord injury patients. So overall, a controversial issue, you know, most people could probably agree, you know, including layman that uh, when you, see, you have a patient with a spinal cord injury, it would make the most sense to try to decompress it soon, urgently, um, but there seems to be controversy among experts. So the preliminary results of randomized trials that were conducted on this showed that there may be neurologic improvement. There's been no high, uh, high impact or any randomized, well-executed randomized controlled trials on this topic. Um, obviously, it's hard to randomize decompression of spinal cord injury patients, and that would probably be unethical. So not something that's easy to study. Um, but these authors wanted to know a couple of things. One, one being the optimal timing to decompress patients who are complete spinal cord injuries. So that present to the trauma bay or present to the ER, um, you know, already uh, at the full extent of their injury. The optimal timing to decompress patients who are incomplete spinal cord injuries. Um, and then the other one kind of on the expert opinion side of things would be worldwide variability um, in timing of decompression for the injured spinal cord. So like I mentioned, this was a literature review. Uh, the authors of this paper uh, did an extensive search and found, um, you know, multiple studies between 1995 and 2009, both actually human and clinical, or sorry, animal and clinical studies that uh, were relevant in decompression of spinal cord injuries. And they also sent out a survey, a 20-question survey in English to 2,000 spine surgeons across the world in various medical uh, associations. Um, so this is just an example of some of the studies that they looked at. I think that important thing to highlight is like I mentioned, there's no high level evidence. There's some, um, you know, prospective cohort non-randomized studies by some big names in here, uh, like Dr. Vicaro, who, who published that Telix paper we talked about earlier. Um, and, and these are some of the things that they concluded, most of them kind of showing that there was no, either no consensus um, or that early surgery does not yield a neurologic improvement. Um, I think one of them states that there may be neurologic improvement. Um, and then 
so, you know, some of the animal studies did show improvement in, in early decompression, but that was, you know, within 30 minutes of injury, which, uh, you know, I, I don't know how clinically relevant that is for, for human spinal cord injuries. Um, and then the survey they sent out was, was five scenarios. I think they came up with a few clinical scenarios um, and then surveyed the surgeons on how soon they would operate on this patient if they presented to them. Um, and so these are some of the respondents, sorry. Um, and he's, the scenarios are listed below, but uh, it's pretty interesting to see the variability in these pie charts and what people would say. And this is what they looked at is, is expert opinion. But in, in most cases, most of the respondents for all the scenarios end up responding uh, within 12 to 24 hours uh, of the various scenarios. So you guys can go ahead and, and read these on your own time. But some of them are things like central cord injuries, uh, facet fracture dislocations, um, thoracolumbar spine injuries, compression fractures, um, and their associated neurologic sequelae. So the, the conclusions of this paper from uh, you know their widespread literature review and expert opinion um, were you know, relatively uh, unassuming, but um, I think they're important for us to think about as we see these patients. Um, so they had some strong recommendations from what they qualified as moderate level of evidence uh, using the class system of evaluating quality of evidence. Uh, and what they recommend in this is that, you know, majority of spine surgeons would prefer to decompress any spinal cord injury within 24 hours. Um, and that should be considered, you know, part of therapeutic management standard of care in any spinal cord injury patient. Um, and then another strong recommendation, but with low level of evidence, um, is that in Asia A, complete spinal cord injury patients, cervical spine, they prefer decompression within 12 hours, and, or within 24, sorry. And then for incomplete cervical spine injuries, Asia B through D, they prefer decompression within 12 hours. Um, so that would be considered very early, which makes sense if a patient is, is not have a complete spinal cord injury, what you wouldn't want to wait for them to progress to a complete spinal cord injury. You want to get in there and, and try to take care of them and, and maximize their chance at neurologic recovery. Um, so their conclusions in the study were, you know, that early decompression is safe and potentially beneficial for neurologic recovery. Uh, most spine surgeons that responded to the survey would responded to the survey would decompress a spinal cord injury within 24 hours. Um, and there, a an incomplete injury should be decompressed very early um, in comparison to a complete injury, which would be decompressed early. Um, and, and that's kind of the conclusion that I think is important for us to highlight. So for me, the relevance of this paper is if I'm on call overnight and there's a patient with, uh, you know, cervical spine trauma um, and I see them and, you know, they, they have, uh, you know, some cervical radiculopathy or, you know, signs of nerve root injury and maybe some tingling in the legs. Uh, and then I go back and see them an hour later and then they progress to bilateral upper extremity weakness. I'm going to, you know, obviously I probably would call my staff to begin with, but I'm going to call again and say, Hey, this guy needs to get upstairs now. And we need to get, get, uh, you know, get him to the OR as soon as possible. Um, yeah. so I think that that's probably the relevance to me. And I think another thing to point out is a lot of the times in the patients that have complete spinal cord injuries, they're often so polytraumatized that, um, there's a lot of other things going on. So, I mean, they'll be in the shock or, or we call our trauma-based shock rooms, but they'll be in there uh, getting chest tubes. They'll be getting femoral lines. They'll be going, getting exploratory laparotomies, splenectomies, maybe going to IR for embolization. And then, um, you know, and then on hospital day one or two, we'll have a chance to stabilize their spine. But, uh, you know, obviously life-saving measures take precedent 
um, in that scenario. And, and those are the same patients that tend to have complete injuries anyway. So there's a lot of confounding variables that make this a hard thing to study. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point to bring up. I mean, not to mention, you know, so when this these injuries occur, they might not go directly to a uh, level one uh, center where it can actually be managed because they're in extremis and they just need to be kind of stabilized. You know, so a lot of times these people are transferred in and, you know, that's going to add on to the time. Just like you said, they're often, uh, you know, hemodynamically unstable and they have to they require a a certain amount of resuscitation before they can go to uh, surgery so that adds on to the time Uh, don't let them have you know they polytrauma patient they have a femur fracture I mean a lot of times that femur gets fixed sometimes uh, before the uh, before the the spine is stabilized you know if they can lace a pine which they they will be able to usually um, a lot of times the femur may even be fixed uh, before they uh, have their spine stabilized and if they came in to that surgery with like some kind of pulmonary contusions and now we didn't fix the femur they they tend to kind of take a hit from that and it's even longer before they finally make it to the or to get their spine stabilized so saying all that to say you know i think most most surgeons uh agree with the you know trying to get these guys uh their spine stabilized as soon as possible uh, within 24 hours is definitely ideal, but sometimes it's just not, uh, I, you know, feasible due to, you know, how long it takes them to get to the hospital versus how many other injuries they have if they're hemodynamically unstable and things like that. Uh, but I thought it was a great paper. Uh, like you said, it's almost, you know, unethical to randomize these things, but I think this paper was done in 2010. There's also a paper in 2012 that Dr. Vaccaro was a part of as well. The, um, I think it's called Staskis is surgical timing results of surgical timing in acute spinal cord injury study. And they looking at early versus delayed decompression for traumatic cervical spine, spinal cord injuries. And this was like a prospective study. Uh, and it, again, it found that uh, you know, decompression prior to 24 hours after a spinal cord injury can be uh, performed safely. It is associated with improved neurologic outcomes. So in the cervical spine, I think is a given, you know, people, I think that paper kind of solidified it for a lot of people, you know, c- cervical spine and in- spinal cord injuries, uh, you know, they need to be stabilized within the first 24 hours if possible. Uh, just like you're saying, the whole complete versus incomplete, I think sometimes I'll, I have heard some uh, debate about that. But for the most part, at my institution, I'm not, we're not necessarily coming in in the middle of the night. They come in at one. We're not trying to get there at three to start the surgery. But they're definitely the first case in the morning if they if they're clear for surgery. Yeah, definitely. Same here. And, and definitely echo what you said. A lot of these guys, polytraumas will, um, you know, sit on we'll sit on their spines for a couple of days and not just, you know, we're ready to go and day injury day one, but uh, you know, they're getting so many other things going on that it's just not, not possible to get them back and stabilize. And those are usually the guys who are complete when they, when, when at presentation. Yes. Agreed. Awesome. I think that was a, uh, I really like this topic particularly, you know, obviously everything else we see, but um, trauma is something in my program we do a lot of, we take a lot of calls. So, uh, this is something I think about a lot when I'm alone <laughs> overnight, <laughs> and it, it's nice to read some of these papers and understand well, why I'm making some of the decisions I'm making. Absolutely, and I hope it helped uh, everyone else that was out there listening. I think it was a lot of high yield, uh, high yield information in these papers. These are definitely some staples in the spine literature. Uh, we uh, really appreciate you guys lit- tuning in. 
hope you enjoyed it. I hope you were able to get something from it. And I hope you uh, come back for the next uh, next show. All right. Thank you, guys. Thank you there. <laughs> Thanks, everyone.